the day of the Lord, let justice roll down part two. Now in case we've gotten a little foggy since we were together last week, let's just catch up real quick where we're at in Amos chapter five this morning, the sin of Jeroboam the first, the first king of northern Israel was not simply demonic paganism, but instead Jeroboam saw fit to refashion God to label something that was not God as God in the manner that he needed him to be. Having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the nation of Israel, the people fell immediately and continuously into the vilest of depravity, the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the very truth of God that was so plainly set before them. A couple of hundred years later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, saw a word from God. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. For when our Lord roars, His people come to Him trembling. But the wicked harden their hearts. When they do, a very partial God shows no partiality. He roars forth at Syria and Philistia, at Tyre and Edom, at Ammon and Moab, and even at Judah. But he roars particularly in Amos at Israel, for they are a particular and a very peculiar people, set apart wholly unto him. As we have seen in the book of Amos, with much blessing comes much responsibility. For there is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that comes out of hate. And so thus comes the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. Hear this word, you cows. Not simply an insult, but a spiritual reality. Out of all of the people of the world, he knew them. He was intimate with them. And therefore, they will meet him. Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of armies the God of war. He speaks to his people and he says, prepare to meet your God, not because he doesn't know them, but specifically because he does. And because he does, he speaks a word of lamentation over them. Literally a a dirge for the dead, a complex song from the complex heart of of the most complex God, one that is based in both anger and the deepest sorrow. For God is not angry without cause. He is angry, and rightly so, for the virgin Israel is breaking his heart. The judgment that comes forth out of that broken heart is a judgment that is upright. We looked at last couple of weeks in Amos chapter 5, verse 16, rightly well, not just therefore, 
Not, not just the kind of Western Greek idea that something is proceeding out of something else, but something is very Hebrew ideal. Something is proceeding out of something else because it should. Rightly well, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And yet, even in the midst of this upright judgment, there is also that which is rightly well for the guilty to do. There is that which is rightly well for the righteous and holy judge to do, and that there is that which is rightly well for the guilty to do. Seek good and not evil. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the, the God of war will be with you. As you have said, hate evil. Love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be, it just may be, that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. For offenses of the heart require reconciliation from the heart. Now, if you're going to place your trust somewhere, You'd better know who you're trusting and not just think that you do. Because Israel thought they knew the Lord whose day they were trusting in. And therefore, in believing their own lie, looked forward to that day. The problem is, is they really didn't know the Lord whose day it was going to be. And in their ignorance, they desired the day of the Lord, not unto their salvation, but according to Amos, unto their own destruction. The day of the Lord would not be a day of light to them. It would be a day of darkness because they did not actually know the God whose day it would be. Let's jump back in this morning in Amos chapter 5 and verses 18 through 20. Where the prophet writes and says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? These were a people who anticipated who desired the day of the Lord, and the prophet looks at them and goes, why in the world do you want this? Don't you understand that you don't even know who he is? When his day comes, it will lead to your destruction. It will not be a day of light for you. This thing that you have put the label on and called it Yahweh, this thing that you have called the Lord your God, your Elohim that led you forth out of Egypt, is nothing but a lie. You have rejected the truth of the one true God that was right in front of you for something that you preferred above him and therefore you root for the day but that day for you will be madness it will be destruction and it will be death friends we must be different we must not be those that believe the lie of our own preference we must not be those that drink the kool-aid we must be different. 
Jesus warned us, there will be many that think they are different than ours. There will be many in that day that say to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I didn't even know you. We must be different. Peter described the way that we are supposed to be as the people of God in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 when he said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Mount Zion, for the people of God today, it is not sufficient to root for the day of the Lord, believing that we know who He is. If we actually don't, the only thing that will suffice is to root for, to speed the day of the Lord's coming, actually knowing our God. We must know Him. And if this nation, if this community, if this, if this town, if this county, if this, this, this region, if this state, if this nation, if this world is to know him, then the reality is whether the seeker-friendly church likes it or not, justice plays a critical role. Continuing this morning in earnest in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate. Man, what a. If that doesn't give you the chills and the heebie-jeebies, man, there's something wrong with you. This is God himself speaking this. I hate. What does he hate? Does he hate the pagans? Does he hate the sexually immoral? Does he hate the Canaanites? Does he hate the Philistines? What is it that he hates? He hates every single thing that they are doing that they believe relates to him. And the reason he hates it is because it doesn't relate to him at all. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here you see on display the obstinate anger of a broken heart. I mean, just follow the verbiage with just just in these three verses, 21, 22, and 23. Just follow the verbiage with me real quick. I hate, I despise, no delight, I will not accept, I will not look upon, take away from me your noise, I will not listen. Instead, what will he do? Let justice Roll down. 
Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you look at this in, in the Hebrew, this concept of allowing justice to roll, righteousness to come like the ever-flowing stream, the word here for roll literally means to turn upon one's self. To turn upon oneself. And so in, in, in the most basic meaning of the word, it literally means you, know, you look for this stuff and you start talking about the original languages and people expect you to come up with something really deep. And man, right here, it just means exactly what it says, man. It means like rolling a ball. To turn upon yourself. So generally speaking, we may, you know, if you want to quote a proof text, we look at something like Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27, where Solomon writes and says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. And so, you know, here's this guy, man. You got the, you got the image in your head. He's at the top of the hill. He's got, you know, he's got a rock, probably one that is relatively round. The flat ones don't roll good. You got to have a really steep hill to get a flat one to roll. You know what I mean? So you've got one that's relatively round, you know, and he starts it rolling. And what is it doing? It's turning upon itself. But the statement here is not one generally, because we could pick a ton of usage out of the Old Testament here. But this is not a general statement. This is a statement as it applies specifically to judgment. For it is justice that is rolling down. And righteousness that is coming like an ever-flowing, ever-tumbling stream over those who, instead of doing what God said, have not hated evil and loved the good, but have hated the good and loved the evil. If you want to see it used in a way that's specific to judgment, I think if you want to get an idea for what it looks like when you have a God that says, I hate, I despise, I have no delight, I will not accept, I will not look upon, take away from me your noise, I will not listen. Instead, I'm going to roll justice over you. I think there's probably no better reference than 2 Samuel chapter 20. And in 2 Samuel chapter 20, we see the record. And one of the things I love about Amos is that it is just dragging us all over the narrative of the Old Testament. Just makes you go everywhere. This is awesome. Learn some stuff maybe that we don't know. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 20, you see King David towards the end of his career. So this is, this is not the part that normally gets caught, taught in children's Sunday school classes and those sort of things. You see David towards the end of his career, and he's got some guys that are coming in and trying to undermine and produce division in the kingdom. And one of these guys is a guy by the name of Sheba. And he's going to get what's coming to him. But in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, I really don't want to pay so much attention to Sheba, but is another one of David's men. And so in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now there happened to be a worthless man. <laughs> Golly, man. You know, that was, give or take, this was written about 3,000 years ago. We're going to date David at about 1,000 B.C. And... I don't know what you aspire to in life, but, man, and I want to be a humble guy. Mine may not be much, but I hope that 3,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries that long, there's not some writing that says Brian Williams was a worthless man that's still in circulation. You know what I mean? So here's this guy, and he is a worthless individual. His name was Sheba, the son of Bertri, a Benjamite, which coincidentally... 
grossly beyond the normal population raises the likelihood that he was a southpaw. He's probably left-handed. And so keep that in your head for what comes next. He blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. He is undermining the authority of God's king. And so all the men of Israel withdrew from David, and they followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in the house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So here's the command from the king. We have a problem. We have a usurper in our midst. He is undermining the ordained authority of God's king. And because of him, all of Israel has departed from following me. But the men of Judah are still faithful to me. So I'm going to charge you, in light of what this Benjamite is doing, I'm going to charge you to go to the men of Judah. And in three days, you have them here to me. And you make sure you're here as well. And for whatever reason, which I can only begin to speculate considering his history, this guy decided maybe David didn't really mean what he said. Verse 6, verse 5, So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servant and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all of the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri, but they were at the great, but when when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. This guy that had been charged by the king to do a very important task in a very time critical manner, but didn't manage to get it done in such a way that he put the kingdom at risk and played into the hand of the usurping Benjamite. And now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails on the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. So here's the picture. This guy has put the kingdom in critical danger because of his unwillingness to execute the king's command in a timely manner when time was of utmost importance. And so here you have a man in Joab. He's got a sword on his thigh. He approaches 
Amasa, the sword falls from its sheath, probably because he was stooping low. We don't know for sure. The sword falls from his sheath, and in one slick movement that was so smooth that Amasa did not realize what was happening, he scoops down as though to bow, sweeps up the sword with his left hand, not his right, grabs him by the beard as though he's going to kiss his cheek, uses it as a handle to gut him like a crappie. He does it in one smooth blow with a sword that was almost certainly made out of cast bronze. This isn't some high-carbon Damascus folded steel. He didn't slice him. He stuck him and leveraged him and spilled him right out on the ground so that he died, but he's not dead yet. He's dead. You ever heard the term dead man walking? But he's not dead yet. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing. He lay rolling, turning on himself. He lay rolling in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by to see him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway and into the field and threw a garment over him. Now, friends, I would propose to you that these people are a little grittier than the Snapchat generation. And what Joab did to this dude, leave him twisting on himself in the middle of the road, in the death throes of a man that has taken a gut wound, they couldn't even handle watching. And so they scooped him up, took him out, and dropped him in the field and threw a blanket over him, not because they felt sorry for him, but just nobody wants to see that. I hate let justice wallow over you. Let it roll down. I despise no delight, no acceptance. I won't look upon it. Take away from me your noise. I will not listen. All rightly well says an angry God. Man, he told them. He told them what to do. He said, hate evil and love good. This is what he told them to do. I mean, it's right here in chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But they didn't hate evil. They loved evil. And they didn't love good. They hated good. And because they would not establish justice in the gate, they would wallow in his Justice, like a man flopping in his death throes in the middle of the highway. Rightly well, says the Lord. Case in point, we could do the whole thing here. We'd be here all day, so we won't. But I'll just pick a couple. Delight. 
I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The word delight there is a little bit of a stretch, bring it into the English. It actually means smell. It's typically used in a very positive sense. Like it is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, when the Lord is pleased with what Noah did after the flood. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled, it's the same word, the Lord smelled, he delight, delights not really that, that good of a translation. He, he smelled it. Now in the case of, of Genesis chapter 8, the smell delighted him. It was a pleasing smell. And we know that because of the context. He, he smelled the pleasing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The Lord smelled what Noah offered and it was a delight to him. It was pleasing to him. It was a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. But while what Noah offered smelled sweet, what they offer is a stench. I have no smell for. I have no smell for your solemn assemblies. You understand this is the Lord saying, when you guys get together, you stink. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. The concept in the Hebrew here is utter disdain to the fullest extent that it can possibly be disdained. As a matter of fact, this is the same word that is used of the way that natural men hate Christ. In Psalm chapter 118 verse 22, the stone that the builders has rejected, the stone that the builders have despised, has become the cornerstone. God despises their feasts the same way that lawless men despise Christ. And it just goes on and on. He says, you know, I, I hate this stuff. I, I utterly disdain it. I won't smell it. Here in a minute, he's going to say, I don't want to hear the noise. The extent of his anger and the extent of his judgment for their sin is vast. As a matter of fact, I think if we want to get an idea of the scope of what is being spoken of here, probably one of the best places to look would be the very first chapter of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is going to spend the majority of his prophetic career prophesying over the southern kingdom of Judah. However, periodically, the Lord will lead him to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's exactly what we find going on in Isaiah chapter 1. Interestingly enough, during the reign of Uzziah, roughly the same time that Amos was speaking in northern Israel. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, and Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint for the sole of the foot. Even to the head there is no soundness in it. Just bruises and sores and raw wounds. They have not been pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You know what that means? Not been pressed out means you hadn't squeezed the pus out of them. Just festering. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city just out there on their own. If the Lord of hosts had not left us survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? says the Lord. Now we're starting to get back on, you know, he's been talking about the nature of his anger. Now we're starting to talk about the application of it just like he does in Amos. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. Guys, I got to tell you something. When the Lord looks at you and goes, you know what, buddy, you've wore me out. You've done something. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. His anger is vast. Vast. And I'm not going to preach on it today, but I would say um, that um, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15 really throws a wrench into a lot of populist theology about the nature of God and the way he responds to human prayer. Don't take it from me. Take it from him. There it is. He says, I will not listen to you. Now look, man. 
This is he- this is weird stuff. I mean, this ought to, this, this this will curdle your milk. I mean, when you when you get, the, man, we we are really comfortable with God going. Listen, you know, I am love. We're not we're not real com- when he starts going. Listen, you know, I am the one. Remember what I said earlier in the chapter? I hung a ride in the sky. I hate what you're doing. His anger is vast. To what extent? Well, in Amos, we've already seen that the extent with which his anger burns against Israel will secure a 90% mortality rate when the Assyrians come upon them. He says, I don't want to smell you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to hear you. Your worship songs are noise in my ears. This may perhaps be the spookiest one of the bunch. In Amos chapter 5, verse 23, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. He says, take, take these songs that are they're just noise to me. Just get them out of here. And the problem is not the quality of the music. The problem is not that the drums are too loud. The problem is not that the the harp is electric with a whammy bar. That's not the problem. The problem is not that, you know, we're singing all of this stuff that was written by David and we really like the old stuff that was written by Moses, right? That's not the problem. The reason that it's noise to him It's not because the content of the music that is being made, but because of the heart of those who are making it. And so he says, I'm going to take the music that you're making and I'm going to change your song. I'm going to change it. And here is what it's going to become. Amos chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, Lord, a basket of summer fruit. And then he said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. And the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. He says, you think they're sweet. You think your melodies are good. You think your harmonies are good. You think your tempo's right. You've got your timing down. You even know how to modulate. From time to time, you'll get a decent bridge like a bridge he says it is noise to me so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to make it be what it actually is you know what it's going to be here's what it's going to be so many dead bodies the songs of the temple says the Lord The songs of the temple should become wailings. And what are they going to be? Here's what they're going to be singing. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. They're just everywhere. Do you hear the desperation in these people's voices? They don't know what to do with themselves. There are corpses everywhere. It's not just one guy, 
turning on himself from the sword of Joab in the middle of the highway that is such a spectacle that we got to carry him out here in the field and throw a garment over him. They're just everywhere to the point that we don't have enough garments. And they're flopping and they're writhing and they're twisting because justice is rolling down like water. So many dead bodies. They're everywhere. What can you do? Silence. You understand the last part, right? It's a reference all the way back to chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. That means what you do is you shut up because you're afraid that the only thing that making a peep can do is make it worse. So you just be quiet. Damon, I don't think I knew what I was getting into when I started preaching Amos. This is a deal. Here's the thing. Specific spiritual context. Woe to you who wish for the day of the Lord. Specific physical manifestation. Amos chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Here's the way that all this stuff that is trying to be showing itself as being awesome, that the Lord actually hates, that He's not going to smell, He's not going to listen to, He's not going to acknowledge. He's not going to hear. All this stuff that he hates, he's about to show for what it really is. It's already been manifesting itself in the midst of the people in a very particular manner. Looks like this. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king. And Kiyun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of war. The God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. You'll take up Sikath, your king, and Kiyun, your star god. You know, it's not often that a minor prophet gets quoted in the New Testament, but it happens from time to time. And when it does, it is typically both barrels. And so too it is here. It is Stephen. In the only sermon that he ever preached that's recorded, man, one of the best sermons in the New Testament. I mean, you got to put what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. I mean, you know, you got to have, obviously, you got to have the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's right up there at the top. You got to have Peter in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus. I don't know if Stephen makes number three, but he's certainly a contender, man, and he certainly makes the top five, in my opinion. In Acts chapter 7, verse 35, now. You guys know, I think, the background here, but let's just get everybody on the same page in case you don't. So Stephen, 
It's a man that is full of the Holy Spirit and the, 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 the unrighteous zeal of the Jews has been particularly focused upon the church at this point after Pentecost and Stephen is proclaiming the word of, the God, of God to them and he speaks to them about the way that the Lord has been with their ancestors from time memorial. Not time immemorial because it's right here. It's very much memorialized. And he speaks to them about that. And he speaks about the way that the grace of God was with them and how they were a peculiar people and how he chose them, not because of them, but because of his own heart and the way that they were stiff-necked and constantly wanted to rebel. And God just would never take no for an answer. By golly, I'm going to save you. Under the rod of discipline, I will bring you into the kingdom. You will be my children, man. I'm going to have the prize for which my son will die. I'm going to have it. And he speaks to them about the way they've rebelled and about the way that God has been faithful nonetheless. And as he speaks, they get angrier and angrier and angrier. And it's such a shame. He's speaking to them the very words of life. All they have to do is repent and believe. That's it. Instead, they're going to destroy themselves and they're going to meet their God, O Israel, on his terms and not on theirs. In chapter 7, verse 35, right smack in the middle of this sermon, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. And at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the inhabitants, um, or who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now quoting from Amos chapter 5. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star and your star god, Raphane, the images that you have made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen provides us by the Holy Spirit an interesting piece of information. And that information is this. That information is that Sicketh and Molech are the same demons. For those of you who've known me for some time, you will know that one of the reasons that 
I despise flaky, false spiritualism is because it undermines the true movement of the Spirit when the Lord sees fit and props up an idea of cessationism that is not only unbiblical but heretical and blasphemous. Scripture teaches a very real spiritual reality, not only of the Holy Spirit, but also of the spirit of lawlessness. I have one personal anecdote (laughs) that refers to Molech. Uh, The first time we got to go to Israel, me and Grant, uh, uh, we were wandering around the, um, the Museum of Antiquity, um, just outside of Jerusalem, and uh, we had gotten separated. We were not being good boys, and we had gotten separated from our group. Uh, not on, intentionally, but we, we had. It took them a while to find us. They were a little weirded out when they did, and they were somewhat concerned that we weren't more concerned about being separated from the group than we were. And so there we are, and we had extra time. And, and, and I'm looking around this um, 10th century Uh, or so um, BC area of the museum and man they've got idols to Baal and they've got idols to Dagon they got idols to Asherah and I mean when I say they got them friends let me tell you they got them like they've got so many they don't know what to do with them they'll have these whole little rooms that are set aside that will have an idol of Baal that roughly dates from a 50 to 75 year period because the styles change you know Baal's got He's got to stay in style, right? The styles changed over time. So they'd have them from a particular time period, and they would literally have a room that, with a glass wall in front of it that was floor-to-floor, as tight as you could, wall-to-wall, as tight as you could pack them in there, literally as tight as you could pack them in there. Like the only ways you're getting the ones in the back out is to take everything out first. And then out front, they would have a particularly, you know, pristine example that they would have in a little glass case right out front where you could, you know, see all the way around it. And so, man, we've looked at so much bail that, like, bail's lost. You know, the first time you see one, you're like, oh, man, I've been reading about that all my life. And then you've seen, like, 2,000 of them, and you're like, okay, whatever. And, and you see the Dagons, and you, and, and, you, and, and you see all of this stuff. And so I say this, you know, for those of you that know me, if you don't, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. Um, I turned over and looked, and sitting in this corner by itself was this piece of black, crusty basalt. I mean, just pitted and potmarked. And it literally felt like it was sucking everything that was good out of the room. Almost looked like a tombstone. It's about this tall. It's rounded on the top. It was very crudely carved, and it had this figure. There was just a glorified stick figure. That was it. And in one hand, he was holding what was obviously a lightning bolt. And he had kind of a a horned, I don't know if it's a goat or a steer, I don't, I don't who knows. Like I said, it's pretty crude, man. Like, I'm not much of an artist, and I probably could have pulled it off. And it was just 
man, if, 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 if a demon can be associated with an object in such a way that it, it to some degree associates evil with that inanimate object, I'm not saying that the rock actually became evil, but if it could be associated with it to some degree, then it was. It's the only one in the whole place. And all the plaque said was Molech the abomination. Here's what it says about him in Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 20, verse 1 through 7, saying to the people of Israel, if any of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. The Lord says, if anybody gives any of his children to this demon, what you need to do is take him out and beat his brains out with rocks. And if you don't do it, I'll cut you off for not doing it. Leviticus 18, he says this, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So, here you have the Lord, and he says, look, the reality is this. Woe to you who says, woe to you who desires the coming of the day of the Lord. You don't know the Lord whose day it is. If you did, you would not be doing the things out of the depth of your heart that I absolutely despise. You wouldn't be a stench in my nostrils. Your praise wouldn't be noise in my ears, but because... Your heart is so offensive because you, O virgin Israel, have turned from your God, have turned from your husband, who's turned from the one who took you when you were wallowing in your blood and said to you, live, because you have done this, I am furious, he says. And if you want to see the proof of how rotten your heart actually is, all you have to do is look at that which you run after. So here's what I'm going to do. You're going beyond the, you're going beyond Damascus. You're out of here, man. And when you go, you can pick up Molech that you love so much that you're willing to sacrifice my children to and you take him with you. And y'all can all go to Babylon and rot. Even the kings of Israel before it was all said and done, would throw their children to his fires. You know why they did it? He was a fertility god. They thought that if they would burn their children to him, that there would be more wheat in their silos and more lambs in their flocks. 
They thought that their bellies would be fuller, that their borders would be safer, and that they would generally have a more prosperous life. The Lord equates it on the same level of evil with sodomy. And a man lying with a man as he would lie with a woman. Friends, I don't think I have to draw the picture for you. As a nation, we're neck deep in this stuff. We don't call it Molech. We call it choice. We do it for the exact same reason. We think that it'll make for a better life. That's why. We think it'll make our life, we think our life's going to be bad. The Lord gives you a child. And perhaps it is under very difficult circumstances. I don't mean to diminish that at all. Don't mean to diminish that at all. Perhaps it is under very difficult circumstances. Perhaps it's under such difficult circumstances that you can't care for that child. Maybe that's the case. Brother, that's where. That's where the people of God better step up. Why don't we do it? It's going to be too hard if we don't. We justify it, say it'd be too hard on the kid. Man, perversion is just, I mean, have you guys ever seen anything like it in your life? Just in the arc of the last three to five years, have you ever seen anything like it? The answer is, is the world has seen stuff like it. They have. And if you look back historically, whether it be Israel or Sodom, when you see that, friend, the end is right around the corner. I mean, it's right there. You won't find a society that exists with that for any significant length of time. Judgment always falls. It always comes. The two things that the Lord is going to point out and go, because you've done this, justice is going to roll. We're in them up to here. You know, we celebrated Dobson versus Jackson, man. We celebrated today. Thank the Lord for that, right? At the same time, man, the people of God need to know something. We need to, I mean, hey, don't hear me because when you when you speak against anything, I mean, when you try to temper anything, people are like, oh, you're, you're not as happy as you are. No, I am. Man, Dobson versus Jackson, incredible. It's awesome. Praise, praise the Lord. But look, an offense of the heart will not be reconciled by the law. It won't. An offense of the heart, the reckoning must come from the heart. Which is why you're seeing what you're seeing right now. Which is why you're seeing what he was talking about when he said, your, your harmony is noise to me. I'm going to change your song and make it, oh my God, look at all the dead bodies. I'm going to expose it for what it is. So friends, it's being exposed. Man, you can't have righteousness by rote. That's not what Scripture teaches. And so, hey man, we've got a law that has returned us to some degree to the opportunity for righteousness. They don't think it returned us to righteousness. They didn't say abortion was, was banned, it's terrible, it's awful, and it's an affront to God. They just said what the Constitution says. States get to decide, right? I mean, man, I learned that in Mr. Jennings' civics class. If it is not 
particularly remanded to the federal government. It belongs to the states. That's all they did. And yet, what are you seeing? If abortion is not safe, neither are you. What you're seeing is the heart that's been behind it from the beginning. It's not about choice. It's evil. It's evil. It's not about choice. Let me tell you something. Because I know there are people that are harmed by it. And I'm sorry that you were lied to, and I'm sorry that you were led astray sometimes by people you thought you should have been able to trust, and I'm sorry that the church did not stand up and make it clear enough to you. I am. And my heart goes out to you. Let me tell you something. The Lord honors a contrite and repentant heart. He does. But you know what he doesn't honor is an obstinate one. And right now where we are at as a nation is the same place that Israel was. It is an obstinate one. And it is showing itself for what it is. Man, let me tell you, when the Lord roars from Zion, when the Lord roars from Zion, what the wicked do is harden their hearts. One more time this morning, back in Acts chapter 7. We'll finish up here with Stephen's quote because, you know, Stephen, he's on a roll, man. He's preaching. He's quoting Amos and he's saying, This is you. Man, the Lord put his truth before you, put it before you, put it before you, you hardened yourself, you rebelled, you didn't want anything, you wanted to fashion something out of your own hands and says, this is the way I like God to be. And he just said, no, 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 no. And he quotes Amos to him. Do you think they listen? Do you think they go, oh man, wow, Stephen, you're right. How could we have done this thing? Oh, and the Lord roars from Zion. The shepherds tremble and Carmel withers, but the wicked, they harden their heart. In chapter 7, verse 54, when Stephen summed it all up, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. <laughs> if you've ever known you're about to get punched, one of the first things that should run through your mouth is make sure your tongue's not between your teeth. It's good to get them together. Same deal. You're gonna go over the top of them. You're gonna go over the handlebars of a bike. Get them together, man. Right? But let me tell you, you've got to be. I don't know that I've ever been so angry that I ground my teeth. But they were. They were ready for a fight, and they were going to have one. When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Amen. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at his feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. When the Lord roars from Zion, the wicked do not alter their activity they increase it 
they harden their hearts. They fortify their opposition. They circle the wagons and close their ranks. But that is not what his people do. It's not what his people do. His people do something different. That's what the wicked's going to do. They'll do it every time. Don't be shocked, friends. That's what they do. They do it every time. That's what the wicked do. But that's not what his people do. You want to know whether you've got somebody that's wicked or someone that's the people of God? Watch the way they respond to the judgment of God. Not how they necessarily respond to the offer of grace. Because on the surface, the wicked man will often seemingly respond well to the offer of grace. Now it's on the surface, and God knows his heart, and you don't, and I don't. And so we, we, we can't see, but man, you want to get a load of which one is the wicked and which one is the child of God, watch the way they respond to his justice. The wicked will grind their teeth, stop their ears, and rush together to put a silence to that who is speaking it. Not the people of God. What the people of God do, what the people of God do is Joel chapter 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What's coming to Israel is a 90% mortality rate. What's coming to Israel is so many dead bodies. The corpses are everywhere. But it's coming because of their wickedness and their guilt. It doesn't have to be that way. Friends, I'm going to say something. It sounds bold. It is bold. It's spooky for me to say it. When I was in my 20s, I probably would have said it without a lot of trepidation. I'm going to say it anyway right now, but I have a lot more trepidation than I would have had then. Let me tell you something, guys. Judgment is good. Judgment should be welcomed. And the reason that it should is because judgment is directly tied to the production of repentance in those who are ordained to belong to the Lord. That's why judgment is good. That's why Peter can say, man, listen, the day of the Lord, whoa, the heavenly bodies and the earth are going to melt as they burn. So, that being the case, you know, what sort of people ought you to be? Man, you ought to be the people that hasten the day. Jesus said it this way in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The reality is, for those who are deigned to become the very children of God, man, John chapter 1. Those to whom he gave the right, not because of the will of men, 
Not because of the intellect of men, not because of the choice of men, but because of God. Because of God who chooses. Those who He gave the right to become the children of God. Man, those people, when judgment comes, it produces in them a repentance that was not previously there. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now, it weirds me out. Because guess how much I like judgment? About as much as you do. Man, I like interest rates low. I like the shelves at the Walmart, I know. Kind of pigeon holds me there. If we had a Whole Foods, I would like for you to think I shop at it. The reality is, is that I can go there about once every three months. You walk out with a little bag, it's great. So like $89. 12 different kinds of cheese, none of them bigger than a golf ball. Boy, they sure are tasty. Now, I'm a Walmart boy, friends. Right next to the house. I like for the shelves to be full. I don't like them to have empty spots. My goodness, you want to talk about soft and squishy. I just don't know what I'm going to do when they don't have the right coarseness of kosher salt in stock. They got kosher salt, but they don't have the grind that I want. Huh? Things are rough, man. They get hard. You know? Batteries get low and your truck remote and you can't start the air conditioner five minutes before you get out there. Things 112 degrees outside. Man, I don't like judgment. I don't even like just the kind of general difficulty that just happens in life like your remote not starting that isn't actually judgment. Like, I don't like that stuff. Man, you got this... I mean, you got this God who goes, look, I, and look, we've, we've done this already. I won't do it again, man. God of host, eh, God of war. He says, I hung Orion in the sky, and what I'm going to do is wallow you in it. And that weirds me out. And what kind of people do we have to be? We've got to be the kind of people that have the quality of character in the sanctification of Jesus Christ that says, Lord, if you have to wallow us in it and that lets some people repent and be saved, then I guess what we'll do is get wallowed in it. He wasn't finished in Isaiah. Oh, he's angry, no doubt. Man, he's angry. But he doesn't finish in Isaiah 1 with verse 15. He doesn't finish with, you know, you spread out. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He doesn't stop there. Instead, he says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. I would tell you that this is a parallel concept to hate evil and love good <laughs> wash yourselves and make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless plea the widow's cause come now let us reason together 
Man, I'm telling you, if after all of that anger, if God's going to give you a shot to be reasonable, probably what you ought to do is be reasonable. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, I mean, the application is pretty straightforward. Um, Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. None of these things are possible unless your sins being like scarlet shall be made white as snow. It's a passive verb. It's not something you do yourself. It's something that's done to you by God. So he makes you white as snow in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, then you're able to go out and do these things like seek justice in the streets and plead the cause of of the widow and the fatherless and all of those sorts of things because he made you righteous you do righteous things it's the opposite of because you are a sinner you do sinful things this is the new creation versus the old that part's pretty straightforward You, you, you say but yeah but you know as we've been reminded as we're moving through here Amos is not a book that's written to an individual right I mean, there's certainly things to glean as individuals out of here, but this is not a book that's written to an individual. It's a book written to a nation. And so, you know, Pastor Brian, I am born again. And I am being sanctified. And if you don't believe it, I can show you the scars that will prove it. <laughs> and he's crushing me into the mold of his image that doesn't have room for a lot of my image so stuff gets cut off and ground off and chopped off and things get tough you want to know if you're sanctified just count the scars but try as I may you know it's a 24-7 just stream of a news feed that is nothing but exactly the things that we've been reading about that he says are the manifestation of the heart that I hate and makes me want to kill you all. So what do I do about that? Like, where does that leave me? You know, I can, I can influence my, my children. I can influence my spouse. I can influence my, my, my relatives and my friends. But, but let's face it, man, it's a big, big world and... You know, I have a little circle. What do, what do we do with that? Well, I think the first thing we do is we recognize that God uses judgment both to glorify himself for being righteous in the face of evil, which, guys, is not this sermon, but let me tell you, that's enough on its own. That's enough on its own. It's for him to say, I'm good, that's evil, you get the results. That, that's enough on its own. But he doesn't stop there because he's not just excellent, he is exalted, which is to, to heap excellency upon excellency upon excellency. And so it, he doesn't stop there. 
as we've seen, he also uses ordained judgment to bring about repentance. We are a people that has been called to pick up our cross and follow him. We're a people that has been called to lay down our own life that we may gain life in him. We're a people that in Christ have been called to consider others more valuable than ourselves. And so the reality is if the Lord has ordained, and do not hear me wrong, you know me, I'm all about trying to make all the noise to make every sort of change for righteousness in this world that we can. Man, let's, let's go kick some doors. I'm great with it. That's awesome. But... If the Lord has ordained a time of judgment on sin in the midst of a nation, if he's ordained it, then it's coming. It's coming. And we're not going to all band together and change it. If he's ordained it, it's coming. And if it comes, then we are to be the people that give the testimony in the midst of that judgment so that when people start wallowing and looking for an answer, there's someone they can look to that has it. Whereas Paul says in Romans chapter 11, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Or as Jesus himself will say in Revelation chapter 13, verse 9, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Friends, this is to that which we are called. We are called to be those that make the testimony. We are called to be those in the midst of absolute judgment, both in Romans and Revelation. The context is the same. In the midst of that, we're to be those that give the good confession that trust the Lord to know what he's doing, even, even if it is so many bodies. This is who we are. This is what we're called to be, and we can do it. And the reason we can do it is because our kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world, man. Go home and read Hebrews chapter 11, man. Those people did what they did because they weren't looking to the reward now. They were looking to that which was to come. Friends, it doesn't have to be death and destruction. Though your sins be as scarlet, he will wash them white as snow. You know what would be even more glorious? You know what would be more glorious today? than judgment leading to repentance. What would be more glorious would be 
for the fear of judgment to lead to repentance now. That's what we invite you to do. Come to Jesus Christ. He is the God of both the living and the dead. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Golly. Lord, I pray that we would fear you as we should. We look at your word. We look at what it says. Lord, we know you're a God. Lord, we know you're a God that loves. We know you're a God that hates. Lord, we we praise you for the fact that you saw fit to love us when we know that you did not have to. You could have so easily hated us for who we are. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. Lord, we pray that even now that you would make your people zealous unto repentance. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.